With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe-Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pampers Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. When Frances Masano was 10 years old, she got nominated for an educational prep program that would change the course of her life. And by that, I don't just mean her two Harvard degrees or her fancy places of employment. No, I mean an ethos about the role of education and the role of luck in shaping opportunity and the lack of equity in both that would propel her to her job as the newly named president and incoming CEO of New School's Venture Fund, where she provides dream capital to those who are working to imagine a more equitable education system in this country. Frances, growing up, what were the messages you were getting about education? I grew up in Coney Island, Brooklyn. So for me growing up, it was a strange place because we did have this like really iconic set of places nearby. And yet the neighborhood itself was actually very much a working class, low income neighborhood. And there was then this gated community called Seagate. And I happened to live two blocks away from Seagate. And so I felt like the community of Coney Island was sending me all kinds of messages. And those messages were, you grew up on the wrong side of that gated community. You grew up on the wrong side of that fence, right? There wasn't a ton of like careers and and educational opportunities right in Coney Island. And so what I found was that at home, my parents had to create this environment that fortified me and my sister, right? The whole reason why we moved to Coney Island was because there was HUD housing available. My parents could actually afford to buy a house with a patch of grass and live in a community. And they really wanted that for us. My dad worked at UPS for 35 years. He was a box sorter. He literally took a box on a conveyor belt and said, it's going to the West Coast, it's going to the East Coast, but he kept his head down and he kept at it for 35 years because that's what you do. You work hard and you support your family. 
My mom came to this country. She was undocumented in this country for seven years from Colombia. You know, she worked in the garment industry, but she worked her way up. She eventually became a paraprofessional and a teacher. And so for us, education was the way to get access to opportunity. It was the way out in some ways. And so the messages that I heard was study hard. You stay focused on this path and it's going to pay off over time. And when you are 10 years old, that opportunity shows up in a very distinct way. Someone sort of discovers you, nominates you for this program, Prep for Prep, which I am very familiar with because you and I both went to Harvard. My roommate from Harvard was a Prep for Prep kid. It changes the course of your life. It does change the course of your life. And one of the things that I'm constantly reflecting on, Alicia, is the fact that like, like the role that luck plays in our lives. And I don't think we talk about it enough. Because we still have this, this focus on rugged individualism. It's because of me and because of what I did. No, we all have gotten so much help to get to where we are. And luck has played a significant role. And so for me, it came in the form of Mrs. Gonzalez in the fifth grade. So it was pre-internet, pre-social media. A flyer arrives at PS 188. It's handed out to fifth grade teachers. And they say to them, identify high-performing kids of color in your class, hand them this flyer. Then what I needed to do was to take that flyer and give it to my parents and say, review this. My parents then needed to find some way, they probably had to call some number to get more information on this organization they had no context for. And what the opportunity was, was to basically interview and test for a program called Prep for Prep, that is basically a 14-month academic boot camp that help kids, working class, lower income kids in the New York City public school system who are of color to get access to private schools. But to get into private schools, you have to demonstrate that you can cut it academically. It completely opened up a fundamentally different world. One where I was able to study all kinds of things, participate in all kinds of extracurriculars, understand my passions, understand my interests, and be surrounded by a set of adults who were cheering me on along the way so that I could be all that I wanted to be, right? But like the fact that like I go back to that story of luck, all the things that almost didn't happen, I see people in my community I grew up with who also received the flyer but who, for whatever reason, didn't try, like, that sticks with me because it shouldn't be up to luck. You graduate from Harvard and you graduate at a time when there is a a really big push to go into finance. I mean, you do equity derivative sales training at Morgan Stanley. What was it that was driving you into the field? Yeah. I don't know what it was. Probably it's just the lack of access to to understanding a range of possibilities. But I feel like that, at the end of the day, is what my parents were fighting for, for me to have freedom, to have opportunity, to have options. You know, but, you know, when, when, when I was in college, it, it all came down to, through Prep for Prep, they were like, hey, we have some internships. Our biggest funders happen to be in the finance sector. And, hey, you can intern after your freshman year at Goldman Sachs, you know? You're not, gonna, you're not, not you're doing sexy work, right? You're, you're probably filing and, and you're working kind of in back offices, but you get access. And oh, by the way, you're going to make a couple thousand dollars that summer. You're going to get a free computer. I was like, yeah, sign me up for that. I, I can use all that, you know? 
And then, you know, as I'm on this kind of striver path, I learn about programs like Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, and they have internships in finance. And I was like, great, that sounds like you get mentorship and a community of folks. I'm, I'll do that. Okay, so I found myself on Merrill Lynch, now Bank of America, doing an internship. And again, you know, prep showed up as I was looking for opportunities junior year, and I worked at Morgan Stanley. And what I was doing was navigating opportunity and engaging with other prep students and the prep community about what they were doing and, and how they were getting ahead. And so it was a well-beaten path, and I was following it. Because it's not as though I could go to my parents and say, like, what do I do next and what do I focus on, right? I knew I was good at math. I had an incl- inclination toward business. And so it felt like it was something worth pursuing. But like, as I look back at that time, I never chose finance. I never chose it. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. I would also argue that there's a subtext to what you're saying, which is, yes, you're learning finance. Yes, you're learning these offices. You're also learning how to operate in majority white institutions. What we are being handed is the playbook of how to operate in these existing systems. And what we are told to do is to tamp down our difference. Like, I will never forget, and I'm completely indebted to all the organizations and the mentors who supported me along the way, but I was being told to pull my hair back and wear stockings and, and, and don't wear big earrings, right? Or your hair out and big and curly, which you will find me doing all the time now. But I was being told to tamp down my difference. I was told how to play the game. To your point about how going into finance wasn't necessarily a choice, what then was the moment or the series of moments that led you to realize that the work wasn't actually aligned with your values? Yeah, I wish it was that simple because there was values tension. I made more money in my first paycheck coming out of college than both of my parents combined after working for decades. And when you come from a working class community and you get that paycheck and you get that first bonus, you think about all the things that are then possible for your family. That was important to me. Being able to take my parents out to dinner and say, I got you, was important to me. So that was a value that I was able to realize through that career in finance to the point when I decided to leave, right? My parents were like, I don't understand it. You're like on this pathway. Like, what are you doing? Why are you getting off of it, right? But the other value that was coming up for me was that I just did not think my life's work was going to be enriching the rich. And what I found was in my body, 
I just had trouble getting up in the morning around year three of doing it because it wasn't my purpose. And in, in those moments, what I kept coming back to were just like my own personal experience, thinking about the role of different organizations that provided that navigational support, that provided access to opportunity, and knew there was something in there that I needed to come back to, but I wasn't quite sure what it was yet. So it was like, to me, like going to business school was a way to kind of figure some of that out. I was going to say, because there are jobs in between that job and where you end up. Yeah. What is interesting to me about all of that is that I think sometimes we tell these stories in a way that becomes sort of oversimplified, overly neat. Like I was on this finance path. I realized it wasn't for me, but I got an MBA and then I went out to change the world in education. It's like, no, you were feeling that way through all of it. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. That is one of the most important messages that I try to share with those who are coming up in like the generations behind us. I felt so much pressure in college to make the right choice. It was like the right next choice. It felt so permanent. And to me, <laughs> what, what I've learned is like nothing is permanent and nothing plays out according to plan, right? And as we meet new people and we expand our horizons about the range of things that are possible, the range of things that we can do, we start navigating into those different spaces. Like philanthropy was never a thing that was on my list of what to do next. So when I, when I went to business school, the idea that I was playing around with at the time was like, I knew there was something about service and education that was important to me, but I was also really connecting to what did I think I was best at the world at. And I felt like I was really good at integrating a lot of information and, and coming up with insights. I thought I was good at customer service, like understanding people, understanding their needs and trying to figure out how do you create a service, a product to then meet that need. And so those ideas led me down the path of thinking about general management, which led me down the path of brand management. But then it led me down this path of exploring in my second year of my second semester of second year at HBS, other passion and interest areas. And so I wound up taking this class called Entrepreneurship and Education Reform. And light bulbs started flashing where I was like, oh my God, there's something here where I can kind of take my business sense and all the things that I think I love and I'm good at and apply it to where my passion is, where my personal story is. Let's talk about the role you're in now at New Schools Venture Fund. You call yourself a provider of dream capital. What does that mean? So we raise money from large family foundations, from high net worth individuals who care deeply about education. We then take that money together. We then allocate that money across a set of priorities that we believe are going to create a stronger education system across the country and support the needs of students, especially those who have been the most overlooked, right? So we both raise money and then we're grantors of capital. And the reason why I say we're providers of dream capital is because essentially we're working with education innovators, social entrepreneurs with powerful ideas for change and the process of coming up with a new idea, to me, is the process of dreaming, of dreaming a big dream, of saying, I see this gap. I see something that's not taking place right now, and I have an idea to solve it. And so we have the ability 
to provide money to those individuals who are dreaming a big dream. We get to provide them with support, so like technical assistance and support to help them kind of refine their ideas, strengthen that idea, grow their impact so that students across this country can benefit from that. So I view like we are providers of capital to dreams. We're, we're providers of dream capital. I want to talk about something which is that you have ascended over the course of those seven years, which I actually think is a very hard thing to do. And I very rarely get the opportunity to talk to someone who has been somewhere for a period of time like that and jump several rungs. What has that ascension required of you? So I view myself as an opportunity spotter. I, I look at the places where there are gaps, where there's white space, where no one's thinking about it. And I try to step into that gap with an idea. And I'm also really interested in taking risks, trying things on. Like for me, I believe that the best learning that we can all do is the learning by doing. I think for so many folks, we're, we're stuck with analysis paralysis. Like, let me get all the data. Let me get all the information. Let me make sure I got this idea perfect. And then let me go implement. And the idea is like, you're never going to know everything you need to know. You're never going to know everything you'd like to know. You should know. But like, what's good enough and how do you put it in place to, to be able to kind of bring more people in, to get more input, to get more ideas, to refine it as you go, but then commit to continuous improvement. So I feel like that's been something that's been really core to how I've thought about my work. And I wasn't waiting for someone to tell me what to do. And I think what's really hard is that that requires a deep comfort with ambiguity, right? You're not going to know exactly what your job is. You're not, no one's going to tell you what success is going to look like. But how do you navigate into these murky waters to create opportunity for yourself because the truth is most of us as Latinas, as people of color, are navigating environments that are not set up for ourselves and it still requires a self-advocacy and requires us to see the opportunity to seize it and create something for ourselves. So I see the tensions, especially with like kind of new generations coming up where that feels deeply uncomfortable, especially in this time where people are seeking certainty from their workplaces. Francis, you talked at the beginning about being lucky and the role that luck can play in someone's life, are there also times when you have felt distinctly unlucky? Oh, what a good question. When I think about being unlucky, like, and I want to be very clear, I view my Latinidad as part of my superpower, right? Especially in the work that I do, that connection, that understanding to why social impact matters is a differentiator for me. There are many moments in my life growing up where because I was a quote-unquote box checker, right, it didn't matter what I achieved or, or what I did. I was not worthy or deserving or of the same kind of tier as, as you know, some of the, my white colleagues, or at least that, that's how they were trying to make me feel. And then lastly, what I would say is, like, in terms of unlucky, I definitely felt unlucky in love. I'm going to tell you right now that the, the, I don't think we talk about this enough, but one of the biggest pressures that I felt as a woman of a certain age without kids was like, well, there must be something wrong with Frances. Is she just so tied to her career? Is that why she's not married? Was there someone saying that to you or you just knew that that was the whisper? Both. I mean, they, they, you know, the, we all, always encounter people who are willing to say the thing, right? And so there were some people willing to say the thing. 
And then there were others who were like whispers and like, that would be my interpretation, but it was both, right? Well, like, you must be tied to your career. Oh, you know, is no one good enough for you? And I'm like, or maybe I'm just dating the wrong people and it's not translating into the kind of love and partnership that I, that I think is going to be key to my life. And look, I wouldn't ask for it to be another way. Like I found an incredible partner in Maurice. We're getting married this summer, but also it just navigating untraditional paths in a world. You, you started, Alicia, talking about systems and these systems in which we're operating and the forces that are, that are at play. And if you deviate from that path in any sort of way, you're put in a corner, you're marginalized. And I never expected my unluckiness in love to, to kind of have that kind of impact. Okay, final question. A thing I did not know about you, Francis, is that you are like a legit singer. Well, I don't know if you say legit. I feel if you're like, if you're legit. I mean, I haven't heard you sing, but the fact that you have it in your professional yeah. bio must mean something. Well, well, let me tell you why it's in my professional bio. Like we all grind and whatever it is we choose to do every single day, but we need releases and we need self-care. And let me tell you right now, I'm working on the whole self-care routine. But one of my releases has been singing. And it's that idea you know, that like, if you ever listen to the song, I am a sparrow, there's this line of like, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. And there's something for me, right, about being able to sing. It's usually with a community of people who are around you that connects me in some ways. It just opens up my mind in really powerful ways. So I've sung my entire life in choirs, you know, in cover bands with friends who had, you know, were really trying to make it. And now I sing in a gospel choir in Oakland because it just helps me to connect to the side of me that I'm not always able to connect to. Francis, I have loved every minute of this. Thank you so much for saying yes and for doing this. Thanks for inviting me. It's been so fun. Thank you, as always, for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our producer. Manuela Bedoya is our marketing lead. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer and mix this episode. We love hearing from you. It makes our day. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram. Tweet us at latinatolatina. Check out our merchandise that is on our website, latinatolatina.com slash shop. And remember, please subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you are listening right now. Every time you share this podcast, every time you share an episode, every time you leave a review, it helps us to grow as a community. a little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.